Last episode, we dove into a crazy story about Zero Days, black market exploit dealers, and how crippling one piece of malware can be to an entire section of industry. If you haven't listened to that one yet, I highly suggest you go listen to episode 15 about WannaCry, because it does tie in pretty heavily to today's episode. We also went a little bit into the details about how it was stopped, and more importantly, the man that stopped it, Marcus Hutchins. But as with most great stories, there's more to Marcus than just this event. As it turns out, a lot more. I'm John Cordes, and today, I'm going to take you on a bit of a dive into who the shell Marcus Hutchins is. Is he a cyber hero or darknet genius? And I'm going to leave it up to you to decide for yourself. In the hacking community, you often find people lumping themselves into a few different categories. There's the black hat. Those are the cyber criminals, people that hack for malicious purposes or at least perceived malicious intent. A lot of the time, it might really just be people hacking out of curiosity, but it does always boil down to the fact that there was never explicit legal permission given to those people. Then there's the white hat. The people that get paid to do this for a living, and have legal permission and authority to do so. Those are your red teamers, your pen testers, security researchers. Anyone that operates within the legal boundaries of their contract can fall under that umbrella. But what if you started at one end of the spectrum and ended up on the other side? What if you thought you were doing good by revealing vulnerabilities, but you didn't stay within the lines, so to speak? What if your life was a little bit gray? As with most things, it's easy to see the binary, but let's step back today, and as I'm telling you the story, let's think about the gray, the middle ground, the area between zero and one. When we left off last week, Marcus Hutchins had triggered the kill switch to the WannaCry ransomware. That was in 2017, but I'm going to take you back a bit so we can really understand who Marcus was at that point in his life. Hutchins was born in 1994, in Bracknell, England. That's about an hour and a half outside of London proper. His mother Janet was a nurse and his father Desmond a social worker. There wasn't anything really remarkable about the family, and that's how things would stay for Marcus for a while. As Marcus grew up, he started showing the similarities that we see with a lot of other people in the field like Kevin Mitnick or Jonathan James. The early fascination with computers and technology. Myself being just a few years ahead of him, it's really easy to see why this generation took to it. It kind of felt like we were growing up with technology. Linux, Windows, Apple, all the operating systems kept evolving, the hardware kept evolving, the internet and the access to it kept changing, and so did we as kids learn to grow and change with it. Now, Janet Hutchins had a computer back at home. That computer had Windows 95 on it, and this would have been around the year 2000 or so. In the years he spent with his computer, Marcus would try to install whatever programs he found interesting on it. Occasionally, he might take the machine apart. And soon, he would just develop an overall curiosity with the world of computers and programming. Even before the age of 13, Marcus was using programming to do what I would call exploit development. Like I think a lot of us growing up, he had a computer class that largely consisted of learning how to type. Marcus, already being pretty well versed in typing at this point, had found this class a bit beneath him, and started setting out on finding ways he could avoid doing the work. 
What he found after a bit of exploration was that in Microsoft Word, there was an ability to write code in a language called Visual Basic that could be attached to Word documents. That function was primarily used in enhancements to the documents, but being the ever-clever teen that he was, Marcus decided to code his way out of the boredom and monotony of his computer class. Step 1. Use that capability to use Visual Basic in order to get around the blocks on installing software. Since the code he was using to download and install programs this way likely came at a different permission level than what his account had, that meant that it was outside the blocks put in place, and it meant that all he had to do was choose the right program to install. So what did he choose? He chose a proxy. The proxy would, in effect, bounce whatever web traffic he wanted to browse through another address. That meant that none of the web filter rules would be an issue for him anymore, and while his classmates were typing away, he could do whatever he wanted to, browse whatever website he felt like going to. And with little wins like this, his love of computers would only grow. He'd end up using similar techniques to thwart his parents' attempts at putting parental controls in place time after time again. And when his parents couldn't do anything on the computer to block him, they tried the router, only to fail there as well. As he grew into his teens, Marcus did what a lot of us did growing up in the age of the internet. He found a community. Where he found it was on a forum dedicated to learning hacking and expanding the knowledge of that skill set. People would share what they were working on, and this really fell into a bit of a gray area of hacking because, while you could in theory assume that some of this was done on personal systems and as tests, in reality, when you see forum topics like botnets, things start to feel a little funky. But in spite of that, Marcus, still being a kid, took all of this and really wanted to apply it. He was in absolute awe at all the things coding and programming could do. One of the first projects Marcus would end up creating to show that skill and test his boundaries? Well, it was a password stealer for Internet Explorer. At this point back in around 2008, when Marcus was 14, Internet Explorer was starting to be able to store your passwords for you. Microsoft tried to keep things proper with this, but didn't just store the autofill passwords in plain text. So, what Marcus was able to steal was a bunch of encrypted passwords. Marcus, though, well, he was starting to show signs of his innate capability for reverse engineering. That's taking programs, code, malware, and really figuring out how it worked and the intricacies of their internal processes. We saw him do it last episode on WannaCry, and, well, when he looked into Internet Explorer, what he found was the location of the decryption key that was used on those passwords that he already pillaged. With that, he'd be able to convert them into plain text. So, in this case, he'd found the locked safe and the key right next to it. It was met with some pretty immediate praise on the forums, and while Marcus wasn't really using it for bad purposes, it seems like, at least based on his interview with Wired, he was just testing whether or not he could do it. That doesn't really expand on whether or not it was right or wrong, but it gives you a bit of a peek into why he did it. And if I'm correct in reviewing some of the sources for this episode, at this point, he switched to a forum that was called Hack Forums. All one word. Now, this site has been around for a while. I remember looking at this site and being a little intimidated at it when I was in high school, and still trying to grasp some of the fundamentals of cybersecurity and hacking. Is this site inherently bad? Not really. Some of the topics range from learning the basics of Wi-Fi hacking to things like advanced forensics and penetration testing. That doesn't change the fact that illegal dealings did tend to happen from time to time on the site. 
Between 2013 and 2018, there were at least 10 instances of malware either being developed or sold before use on that site. But without getting into the ethics of whether or not every user is bad because of this, I just want to lay the groundwork so that you understood what kind of website this was. It could be for learning, or it could be for nefarious purposes. If you want to take a look, I've got a screenshot of the front page of that website right now on my podcast transcript at whattheshellpod.com. Or if you're feeling daring, you can just go there right now, hackforums.net. The site is still up and running, and you can log in, create an account. Over the coming years, Marcus kind of developed a routine where he'd submit work to the site, maybe pull some examples to work from, and then even sometimes use those examples or homebrew a solution that he could use on his school network. It seemed that he made enough waves in the school that he attended that the IT department knew him by name. Eventually, after allegedly causing an incident resulting in the need to replace one of the school's servers, Hutchins just kind of stopped going when he could. Sometimes he wouldn't go, and when he did, he'd either show up as late as he could or leave as early as he could. Instead, he'd opt to spend his nights learning to hone the craft of coding and malware development. So now we're at 2009. At this point, Marcus is just 15 years old, and he's on hack forums bragging about his escapades. One of the bigger brags he made came in the form of him saying that he'd created a botnet of 8,000 computers that he could use anytime he wanted. Now, for anyone that isn't aware, think of a botnet as a group of computers that can all be used by a common owner. You can tell all 8,000 machines to say, start flooding a website with requests and shut it down by way of a denial of service attack. The fact that it's 8,000 different machines here makes it harder, in this case, to block the attack. Another way you might want to think about it is, it's like a hive mind with Marcus at the center. He's able to tell those bots to do whatever he needs to make his projects easier. Or if he wanted to, he could just rent out the botnet and let someone else use it. And in looking at it, the botnet he'd create actually seems to have involved little work on his end. Once he created the base code for it, he'd disguise it as an alluring torrent that someone might want to seed and download. Then just let it spread from there. He could switch it up and make copies for more torrents if he wanted to, but that's really the base of how it spread to those 8,000 machines. People seeding, downloading, and spreading. But even as the botnet grew and he made a little bit of money off that and renting out servers to his community, so did his boredom with what he was doing. Was that really all he was going to do? Add to the botnet? Be a glorified dark web landlord? Ultimately, he decided he was done with this side of it and wanted to go back to his roots. Which is funny for a 15 year old to say, but I'm not one to judge here, he's a child prodigy. He wanted to do a bit more development. Some of the earliest work he did here at this point landed him enough attention that he started taking on requests for malware development contracts on hack forums. The tools he created ranged from things that would be able to tell you if an antivirus was able to defend against a particular malware, and what's called a rootkit. Rootkits, in this case, being a piece of malware that has full admin level permissions on a device and is designed to run as stealthily as it can to try to hide its own presence. Since the quote, root level permissions let users alter our edit log files, it can make them harder to detect because you can just change the log files. Hutchins' rootkit sat in the shadows and watched you enter data into forms on websites. You know, forms that might have something interesting like, say, a username or password field. At its core, this was a stealth credential harvester. Well, his reputation was starting to be legit on the forum, and eventually a guy that went by the name of Vinny reached out to Marcus with an intriguing offer. 
He said to Marcus that he wanted a root kit and that he'd make Marcus some money for it. But in this case, he wasn't buying up front. Instead, he'd take the root kit to sites that would pay miles above what HackForum users might pay and then give Marcus a cut of each sale. It seemed like a more well-thought-out approach to Marcus, who ultimately saw Vinny as someone that knew what he was talking about. So that's how, at 16 years old, Marcus got to work developing what was called the UPass kit. UPass was crazy. I spent quite a bit of time looking at the code for this rootkit and reading write-ups to try to be able to break it down for you, and I'm still not sure I get the complete ins and outs of it all. All I think you need to know is that this thing was adapted. It had ways of keeping itself on the system and reinstalling if someone found it in one location and tried to remove it. It could adapt based off the different kinds of operating system architectures that were out there, and it worked well. That versatility and reliability were big in getting it to sell. And if you're wondering why it was called UPass, well, it was named after a tree that sap was often used to line poison darts and arrows. The analogy here works pretty well because this thing was pure poison on the InfoSec community. And with that, it ended up being the start of a budding friendship between Vinny and Marcus. But while Marcus wasn't exactly sure if Vinny was this person's real name, eventually the same wouldn't be said for Vinny with regards to Marcus. You see, he was able to get Marcus to give him his name and address under the lore of a birthday present that would be sent to him. And to be fair, when he got this gift, it was quite the bit of a gift. Imagine if you would what a box of goodies would look like if it was sent from a drug dealer. Weed, mushrooms, ecstasy, all stuff that's highly addictive, rather illegal, and now looking pretty appealing to a 17-year-old kid. All in all, those two worked together to craft UPass over a nine-month period and it made Marcus a good chunk of change. Enough that for him, Marcus decided that he was going to drop out of school, and decided that he wanted to start trying to play the crypto markets with the money he had. I want to stop here for a second, and get an idea of where your head's at. Because if I was listening to this right now, it'd be really easy for me with the benefit of hindsight to say that this kid's an idiot. Why didn't he know that he was getting played? But remember, He's just 17, he's a kid that's not really had the most social of lives, and finally found something that he was good at. Something that, in all likelihood, no one in his circle would ever understand in the real world. Now, he's found out that not only is he good enough to have a reputation, but he can make money, and even friends online doing it. It's just easy to look from the outside in and condemn the behavior when you aren't the one that walked the path. So. Let's just keep that in mind, but this is a kid. Vinny, seeing potential profit in Marcus, wasn't done. Maybe the drugs were actually his way of giving a gift, maybe it was just to get Marcus's information, or maybe it was a way to force a dependency on him. Whatever the reason, it was pretty clear that Vinny saw Marcus as a way to keep the money flowing. And Marcus wouldn't quite figure it out yet, but Vinny had him under his thumb. It wouldn't take too much longer for that to become apparent, because Vinny came back knocking, asking Marcus to develop a new piece of malware that was to become UPass 2.0. Vinny was really putting the emphasis on the 2.0 here. He was asking for more features, promised more money, and was really pushing all the stops out here to get Marcus to work with him. Here's what some of the new features would end up being. The first, a keylogger. After all, if you can get every key that's pressed, then you've probably got some good usernames and passwords in there. But that would take some creative filtering, because think about every key you press on a day-to-day -day basis and every time you type, then multiply that by thousands of computers. 
Not only is that a lot of data to store, it's a lot to sift through and search through. So what else does Vinny ask for? He wants some fake text input boxes. Imagine if when you're logging in, you see something like enter username, enter password, and confirm password. You might be keen to enter the password twice. It's not unreasonable, if a bit unorthodox. But that second box, that wasn't anything other than a collection point for your personal information. So now, we've got your password handed over on a silver platter. That might not be the exact context in which this feature would be used, but it's certainly one of the possibilities. He wanted to insert fake boxes into websites that the victim would visit, in what are called web injection attacks. That web injection attack request would make Marcus pretty concerned because that type of attack, in addition to credential theft, had a very scary secondary association. Bank fraud. A threat actor could potentially get around two-factor authentication by presenting the victim with a fake code box for their authorization code. Then, if they were close enough in timing, the attacker could use that code themselves with the compromised credentials from the keylogger. And initially, Marcus declined to work with Vinny on this one. It seemed too high risk. Not only was the association bad, but this would be something orders of magnitude greater in terms of illegality than anything he'd done before. So when Marcus decided this was a no-go, that's when Vinny played his hand. Vinny would choose this moment to remind Marcus of all the illegal work they'd done up till now, and then insinuate that if Marcus didn't work with him on this, that his real name, address, and some of the details on what he did for UPASS might make their way to federal agencies. Checkmate. Vinny had Marcus right where he wanted him, and Marcus, not really seeing a way out of this, went with it. If you listen to interviews with Marcus, I think he views this point in particular as a huge crossroads in his life. A decision that he knew might come back to haunt him at one point, but that he was being forced to make that might lead him down a dark path. Either way, over the next few months, Marcus wrote UPASS 2.0. Vinny, during that time, chose to rebrand the tool. Instead of just making another UPASS, he'd aggregate all the different aspects of a rootkit that he was contracting out to different malware offers, do the QA himself, and eventually in June of 2014, he would put what would be known from then on as Kronos into the public for purchase. During that period of Kronos development, Marcus had tried going back to school and enrolled in a community college. But once Kronos launched, there would inevitably be more work for him, in the form of fixing small problems with a malware. So now, life was becoming a balancing act. On one end of the plank was finishing his community college degree, and on the other was keeping up with Kronos, which, don't get it twisted, was still making him a fair bit of money. It was at this point that the drug problem continued to get worse. He'd start to feel an immense sense of paranoia that any minute the cops could be coming for him for his role in all of this. Not only that, but to keep up with both sides of his life, he'd upped his drug use. The drug use kept him in the frame of mind to go on day-long coding binges and continue to get his schoolwork done. As time passed, Marcus would be able to start to drift out of a Kronos part of his life and make a new friend, who went by Randy. Marcus had refused to write banking malware for Randy, but still kept in communication with him. The difference this time was that Randy was as open about his life as Vinny was secretive about his. It came as a nice change of pace for Marcus, and offered what looked like a more sincere friendship at a point in his life where that was really needed. To keep the money flowing, Marcus had effectively automated his use of cryptocurrencies by choosing the right points to buy and sell. 
While he wouldn't write malware for Randy, he did eventually begin to trade crypto for him, starting with an injection of around 10,000 US dollars into the crypto market. Things would be going well between the two until around the summer of 2015, when an electrical outage knocked out the system that Marcus was trading from, resulting in a loss of around $5,000 out of Randy's savings. As a way to try to make amends for that, Marcus decided to give Randy a copy of Kronos for free, and Randy, finally getting his banking malware, called things square between the two. So now, let's flash forward a little bit, because right around here is where Marcus starts working overtime to get his life in order. He quits drugs, going cold turkey as a matter of fact. It was, however, a months-long endeavor, and once his brain finally got into a stable enough point that he could do work again, he decided to get back into the world of hacking. Just not as a criminal. This is the point where he decided to make use of a blog that he'd started a few years prior. A blog I talked about last episode. A blog called Malware Tech. He'd use the blog to publish malware analysis papers and other topics that he found interesting in the community. It grew a pretty decent follower count as well, especially as he started publishing deep dives into some of the biggest botnet players at the time. He'd gone so far as to infiltrate those botnets, willingly putting his machine on them in order to learn where the hijacked machines were, and in doing that, he would then be able to develop a tool that would let you actually track the botnet, like you were tracking the spread of a disease. This was an attention-getter, because now we're at the point where Marcus's work in the legitimate side of things pays off, because the CEO of a cybersecurity firm out of Los Angeles contracted him to make their own version of a botnet tracker, a firm named CryptosLogic. Not only did he follow through with a tracker for what was called the Kelios botnet, but he'd make a better second one in order to track a different botnet called the Sality botnet. The genius in Marcus wasn't lost on the company, and they made him a job offer, a six-figure salary, and a position reverse engineering malware and aiding the company in their efforts to provide security for their customers. He would ultimately accept the position and continue working there for quite a bit. Now, we're up to a point where I tell you again, if you have not listened to the last episode on WannaCry, you should go do it now because this is right in line with that time frame. I say that especially because WannaCry is what took Marcus's reputation and gave it a massive boost. After all, being the guy that stopped what was possibly the most high visibility ransom attack that's ever been seen meant it came with a lot of attention. His follower account on social media skyrocketed to over 250,000 followers and right now, it's sitting at just over 300,000 followers. That's a pretty big number for being in the InfoSec community. So, it was no surprise that when he went to DEF CON later that year, that he was treated like royalty. And he really did live like it out there. DEF CON is a pseudo-underground conference for hackers in the community that happens every year in Las Vegas. It's a major event in the industry and people go because they want to learn more. You'll find a lot of people on the black hat and the white hat side of things there, and if you ever go, you need to be very careful about where you connect your phone or your computer to, because there's always someone listening. The conference is made up of a lot of different talks and different labs and places that you can go and spend time to learn and network. So, Marcus shows up, he's treated like royalty, and effectively parties the whole week. Then, on his way back home to the UK, something strange happens. I'm gonna let you listen to him tell the story. This snippet is taken from a documentary that's free to watch on YouTube. It's called Hacker Hunter, Wanna Cry, the Marcus Hutchins story. It's about half an hour long and absolutely worth a watch. I'll be linking it on my site and in the description if you choose to take a look. But anyways, let's listen to Marcus tell this part of the story. 
towards the end of my week in Vegas, as I was waiting for my flight home, someone in CBP uniform approached me and asked me my name. They led me to an interrogation room built into the airport and it turned out that the guy was actually an FBI agent. At this point, like, I'm completely exhausted. I have no idea what's going on anymore. I've been drinking for days solid. Most interrogation, it seemed like they were looking to leverage me to get to someone else, something which I was not able or wanted to do. They asked me a huge bunch of questions, but it wasn't until about an hour into the interrogation that they actually told me what it was about and showed me an arrest warrant. It transpired that it was because of his work, very much prior to WannaCry. This call is subject to recording and monitoring. Hey, Marcus, can you hear me? Hey, uh, I'm in jail. Okay, so they detained you. Uh, yeah, um, I, I used to write malware and they, they picked me up from some old shit. Uh, have you talked to them at all? Uh, have you got a lawyer yet? No, I, I don't have a lawyer. They have some chat logs of me with some other guy. I don't know how they got them. Look, I'm going to work on it. You'll have a lawyer tomorrow, and you'll speak with the lawyer. All right, see you, man. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. There was a moment of I'm, I'm really actually in jail. But after that, I came to the conclusion that this is how my life is now. I'm in jail, I might as well get used to it. It didn't take long for an indictment to drop. And he was accused of creating the Kronos malware. Yeah, it seems like Kronos came a knock in here. To him, he had known on some level that this day was coming for a while. But the interesting thing for me here is that no one else did. So when the community saw him arrested, everyone suddenly assumed that this was because of his work on WannaCry. The whole hacker community rallied behind him, getting him GoFundMes, crying against the DOJ on Twitter, and some even going so far as to launch retaliatory DDoS attacks. Not everyone was keen to think him innocent, though, because for a hot second, there was even speculation that maybe he'd made WannaCry himself, and it just got out of hand. Eventually, after posting a $30,000 bail, and being separated from all his technology, Hutchins had to use his counsel to manage legal funds for the case. That legal fund being in part the funds raised by the community. However, since this is the hacking community we're talking about, it would come out that not all of those were legitimate donations, and some were made by stolen credit cards. So that money ended up being returned and wiped from a fund altogether. It ended up being that the money that posted his bail came at the behest of two people in the industry, a married couple. Tara Wheeler and Deviant Olam. Neither of those two had met Hutchins before and had actually just left Las Vegas. But Wheeler, with a nice severance package from Symantec, decided that instead of a down payment on the house, they'd want to use that money to bail him out. So they ended up on a plane back to Vegas to help Hutchins. According to them, in an interview with Wired, they saw, quote, a young, foreign, nerdy person of color being held in federal detention, saying that he was the closest thing to a global hero the hacker community had, and no one was there to help him. So they stepped in. Here in the story, Cryptos Logic would put him on unpaid leave. After all, he's been arrested. He's still stateside, and he'd stay that way, making his way out to Los Angeles based on savings. He's talked about this in interviews, and at this point in his life, about the tremendous guilt he'd had. I understand legally, he probably had to take the bail here. If he didn't, it would seem like maybe he was admitting guilt on some level, 
but he'd been riding the reputation of, quote, cyber hero for quite a while. Well, after nine months of living stateside after his arrest, nine months where he spent a lot of time thinking about what this meant to him and who he wanted to be coming out of this, he would be presented with a deal. In the spring of 2018, that deal stated that if he gave all the information he had about everyone who he worked with on the Kronos malware and his time spent working as a malware crafter for hire, they'd give him no prison time on his sentence. He cooperated to the best of his ability, but obviously he never really found out who Vinny was, so it was a bit tough. Along with this, he'd still land with a few felonies and would post an online confession on Malwaretech and one on Twitter. The one on Malwaretech reads a bit more formal, titled Legal Case Update, and saying that, quote, As you may be aware, I've pleaded guilty on two charges related to writing malware in the years prior to my career in security. I regret these actions, and accept full responsibility for my mistakes. Having grown up, I've since been using the same skills that I misused several years ago for constructive purposes. I will continue to devote my time to keeping people safe from malware attacks. And where that one was formal, the one on Twitter gave a bit more insight into how he felt deep down. That one read, quote, There's a misconception that to be a security expert, you must dabble in the dark side. It's not true. You can learn everything you need to know legally. Stick to the good side. This was a few years ago, so what's he up to now? Honestly, not much different than before, he's still at Crypto's Logic. In the court hearings, the judge made note of the fact that it seemed like Marcus had turned away from this road quite a while ago. Not only that, but he'd done an immense amount of good for the community since then. I like to think that Crypto's Logic saw the same thing and kept him on because of that. He's still active on Twitter and on YouTube, he's got a lot of interesting videos breaking down major exploits and vulnerabilities. All in all, I think he came out of this about as clean as he could have asked for. It does leave you with some interesting things to think about though. Was he purposely walking that dark path? Or was he pushed, inch by inch, until he turned around and found that he was so far into it he couldn't see a way back? How much of this was young naivety, and how much was just a bit of greed and ego boosting? What would have happened if he'd refused to help with Kronos way back then? Or if he'd never responded to WannaCry? Would he even have been anyone of interest to land on the radar of law enforcement? I don't know, but it's interesting to think about. Let me know what you think on any of my platforms, because I'd like to get your take on it, genuinely. That's it for this episode. I'm your host, John Cordes. Thanks for listening to me tell you what the shell happened with Marcus Hutchins. Thanks again for listening to this week's episode. As always, if you liked it, can you please leave a rating or a review? Or if that's not really something you want to do, just recommend it to a friend. I'm still the small show, so word of mouth does go a long way. If you want to come and talk to me directly, along with other fans, I do have a link for our Discord in the description of the episode and on the website. I know I'd love to have you there, it's also just a great way to give topic suggestions. Because if you listened to the trailer in last week's episode, then you might have heard me say that this season is going to try to take you, the listener, into account a bit more. And as I said at the end of last episode, the idea for episodes based around WannaCry and Marcus Hutchins came from my friend in the UK, Rav. So thanks again for that, Rav. I hope you liked it. And lastly, in case you didn't know this, I do have a store now. So if you want a t-shirt or a hat or just a sticker for your laptop, then you can go to store.whattheshellpod.com or just visit the site and click on the store button. Thanks, and I'll see you again in two weeks.